Coming to this point now in our lecture material, we've looked at some of the background influences on uh, Van Til, and we have quoted from the Intro to Systematic Theology, and we've seen three fundamental figures um, and one basic confessional background. Van Til is overt and explicit that his Trinitarian theology and its doctrine flows directly from the Reformed Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge's exposition of it, he deems very valuable and follows and quotes. Herman Boving's development of God as absolute personality and its implications for the relationship between the essence and the persons, Van Til approves and develops. And then third, we spent time talking about uh, Charles Hodge and the reference to perichoresis and what that perichoresis entails for the relation of person to person in addition to the subsistent relations. Van Til's theological linchpins have been made explicit up to this point, but we've got a fourth influence. And we need to talk about the influence now of Calvin on Van Til. Calvin's theology of the Son as autotheos, and Van Til's Trinitarian theology of equal ultimacy. And so I'm, I'm thinking of keeping um, our, our, our uh, diagram from Hodge up and talk to you about what Calvin adds to these already existing structures, because Calvin's going to affirm these things in different ways, but he's going to add something of particular uh, value to Van Til. Van Til discusses Calvin's unique contribution, the Son as autotheos, uh, in three primary texts. The Introduction to Systematic Theology, which we're going to focus on today in this lecture. The Survey of Christian Epistemology, and we'll deal with that when we talk about the representational principle uh, in uh, a few lectures down the road. And in the Theology of James Dane. We'll examine Van Til's development of Calvin's theology in these texts in order to appreciate the Reformed rationale for Van Til insisting that the persons of the Trinity are equally ultimate to the essence of God. Now, before we get into that, and before we talk about Calvin in particular, I want you to know that equal ultimacy has already been affirmed. This isn't something that Van Til has yet to affirm through the Hodges and through Bobbing and through the Westminster Confession. Let me explain before we talk about Calvin's unique insight. What Van Til has said uh, in following the old Princeton and old Amsterdam tradition is that the relations of subsistence and coherence denote who God is. God is triune. God is one. God is three. And the three are the one undivided God, and the three indwell one another in these relations of perichoresis or coherence. And so, the, the point that Van Til's wanting to make is it's not as though God is one essence and then adds persons to that essence. 
That would deny the simplicity of God and make the Trinity accidental to the essential monotheism. Nor is it that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we look for a principle of unity, love, uh, common purpose, society, or something like that to unify them. These are the necessary and inalienable characteristics of the triune God. And so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God, one and three, three and one, and there is nothing um, that, that we need to say really beyond that in order to affirm equal ultimacy. That being said, it's a fitting starting point for us to recognize that in Van Til's estimation, all heresies in the history of Christian theology, in one way or another, derive from a doctrine of subordinationism. Subordinationism. In Intro to Systematic Theology, chapter 17, um, here's what Van Til says. He says, Calvin was strongly interested in asserting the consubstantiality of the three persons of the Godhead. To quote from Warfield, in his assertion of Autotheos of the Son, Calvin then was so far from supposing that he was enunciating a novelty that he was able to quote the Nicene Fathers themselves as asserting it in so many words. And yet, in his assertion, he marks an epoch in the history of the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that men had not before believed in the self-existence of the Son as he is God, but that the current modes of stating the doctrine of the Trinity left a door open for the entrance of defective modes of conceiving the deity of the Son too close to which so close that there was needed some sharp assertion of his status as autotheos. Now, that quotation needs to be accented. The impact of Calvin's doctrine of the Son as autotheos, according to Warfield and Van Til following Warfield, marks an epoch in the historical development of Trinitarian orthodoxy. And the significance of that doctrine is that in it, Calvin advanced a radical form of anti-subordinationism, or a maybe not radical, but thoroughgoing form of anti-subordinationism. So Van Til finds in this doctrine, which we have yet to define, something of great value. Let's now unpack what it means for, for the... Uh, tradition to talk now, following Calvin, of the Son as autotheos. What is its significance? Ventil depends almost entirely on B.B. Warfield's work on Calvin and Augustine as he relays his appreciation of Calvin. So, Ventil's scholarship on this point is one step removed from an examination of Calvin himself and is dependent on Warfield. He says this, Warfield makes abundantly clear 
that Calvin has made a definite contribution to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The contribution made consisting uh, in bringing forcibly to the foreground the concept of the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity. The consubstantiality simply means what we've seen earlier, that the Father is God without remainder. The Son is God without remainder, and the Spirit is God without remainder. And the question is, what is the clearest way we can express the fact that the Son is fully and entirely God in a way that is exhaustively identical to the deity of the Father. According to Warfield, Calvin's contribution is summed up, quote, in his clear, firm, and unwavering assertion of the autotheos of the Son. But his assertion of autotheos comes to its full light and its fullest in its fullest sense is the hinge of Calvin's Trinitarian theology. And here's the, here's the key. Calvin's theology of the Son as autotheos was designed, quote, to emphasize the fact that the Son, as much as the Father, is underivative. The Father and the Son are underivative. To make this discussion a bit more precise, Calvin wanted to affirm this, quote, when we speak of the Son without regard to the Father, we will properly declare Him to be of Himself. And for this reason, we call Him the sole beginning. However, when we mark the relation that He has with the Father, we make rightly the Father the beginning of the Son. Calvin's burden, then, end of quote, Calvin's burden consists in an effort to account for the twin facts that, quote, the Father is the beginning of the Son and that the Son has both divinity and essence from himself. Those quotations are from 113, 19, 143, 144 of Calvin. So the Son, qua Son, does not derive his essence from the Father, but simply is that undivided essence. So when we think of the Son simpliciter, without relation to filiation coming into view, Calvin wants to say that he possesses the essence of God from himself. Thus Calvin self-consciously wants to deny that the Father communicates his essence to the Son for what would appear to be a straightforward reason. And here's that reason. If the Father's essence is underived and the Son's essence is derived, it seems that we are bound to speak of the deity of the Son in categories of derivation, but we are to speak of the deity of the Father in categories of non derivation. This would entail that the Father's deity, His being fully God, is something underived, yet the Son's deity, His being fully God, is something that is derived from another. 
This bothered Calvin. This is why Calvin did not want to affirm the communication of the divine essence. This leads us to the question, how can we affirm the Son is ontologically and exhaustively equal with the Father if the Father's essence is underived and the Son's essence is derived from the Father? How can we affirm the absolute and unqualified co-equality of the Father and the Son if the essence of one is underived, the essence of the other is derived? Derived deity seems to be something less than non-derived deity. That's the intuition of Calvin. His burden, then, is to preserve the full deity of the Son while maintaining robustly a theology of the divine processions. He wants to affirm the divine processions and affirm the full and unqualified deity of the Son. And this leads Calvin to make a central and foundational distinction between the underived essence of the Son on the one hand and the eternal generation or filiation of his person on the other hand. This means that eternal generation is a category that denotes personal distinction and relation from and to the Father. Personal distinction from and personal relation to the Father in a relation of subsistence. But the eternal generation of the Son does not bring into its view the derivation of essence from the Father. The Father and the Son share the underived, identical divine essence. And the act of generation is purely a personal distinction between two who subsist fully and without remainder as the underived essence of God. So the essence of the Father is not communicated to the Son in the act of eternal generation. Why? Because the Son has his essence from himself. Because Calvin, following Augustine, does not locate the unity of the divine essence in the Father. He locates the unity of the divine essence in the essence itself. Fundamental difference between the East and the West there. Essence is not communicated from person to person. And I'll say this just as an aside. I believe that's also why the Reformed have consistently sought to resist, especially following Calvin, the idea of the communication of essence from the creator to the creature. But that's a different, different story. But there are personal distinctions or personal relations of subsistence that do not include a communication of essence from one to the other. Thus, eternal generation for Calvin is a personal differentiation within the underived essence of God, and eternal generation is a subsistent relation of origin within an underived, undivided essence of God. Now, that's the burden of Calvin. That's what Warfield and Van Til are going to, 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 uh, to follow. That's their concern. But let us look more carefully at this distinction 
as it appears in Warfield's Calvin and Calvinism. He notes Calvin's rationale for drawing the distinction just outlined. Calvin says this, I assert both that Christ is of the Father as he is the second person and that he is of himself, ase ipso, if we have respect to the divine essence simpliciter. A declaration clearly found in Augustine. Calvin argues that it is only the person of the Son who proceeds from the Father, but not the divine essence itself. He says, I confess that if respect be had to the person, we ought not, so to speak, of the Son as underived, but I say we are not speaking of the person, but of the essence. So Calvin says that those who affirm a communication of the divine essence make it extremely difficult to maintain that he is of the same substance as the Father. And in his debates with Peter Caroli, uh, Caroli argued that if the Son receives his essence from the Father, then he cannot have his essence from himself. And Calvin detected in that the, the fundamental concern that perhaps the Father has a property the Son does not possess. Think of it this way. If the Son derives his essence from the Father, and only the Father has an underived essence, then only the Father is strictly and technically ase. The Son is not strictly and technically ase. He is from another, both in his person and in his essence. So the Father would have the essential attribute of being ase, but the Son would not have that attribute, or he would have that attribute in a derivative way, which would be almost impossible to conceive. How can you have the attribute of being from yourself, ase, dependent on no one else, yet deriving your essence from another? Calvin sees it, I think, if we push it, as a contradiction. How can the Son possess the attribute of being ase if he, in his essence, is from another? So Caroli's position would seem to deny the aseity of the Son and call into question the absolute consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. And so Calvin says, when apart from consideration of the person, we are speaking of his divinity, which is the same thing simpliciter of the essence, I say that it is truly predicated of it, the essence. It is ase ipso, that is, from itself. The Son has his essence from himself. Therefore, following Warfield's presentation, Van Til says this, Calvin conceived more clearly than did they, the Nicene Fathers, that the persons of the Trinity are wholly equal to one another. He says that in the case for Calvinism, page 36. 
It is not absolute co-equality to affirm the Father's essence is underived and the Son's is derived. So Van Til sees Augustine's Trinitarian theology coming to a fuller flowering in Calvin's theology of the Son as autotheos. In fact, Van Til would find it hard to affirm the strong co-equality of Westminster 2.3 without Calvin's teaching there presupposed. Calvin's autotheos seems to bring in a presupposition to 2.3 when the absolute co-equality of the persons are confessed. So whether or not we agree with Calvin, whether or not we agree with Warfield and his interpretation of Calvin, what Van Til took from Calvin and from Warfield is that the Son, as autotheos, removes any vestige of subordination within the ontological trinity while allowing for a procession of the persons. It's a personal procession within the Godhead that does not involve the communication of or derivation of essence. These twin motifs, a rejection of subordination and a true taxis of personal relations in the processions, are limiting conceptions for Van Til, equally affirmed at every point. Now, Van Til says in a work that won him the Gelston Winthrop Fellowship, uh, The Will and Its Theological Relations, Calvin's influence is very clear. Van Til says, as the order of personal existence is concerned, the Father is logically the first, the Son the second, the Spirit third. The eternal generation of the Son is by the Father and the Spirit, by the Father and the Son. But he adds that this logical order of the processions is matched by absolute essential co-equality within a non-derived essence. Limiting conceptions are set forth. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit within the divine processions are ase ipso. So Van Til can affirm eternal generation with full integrity, the personal relation of coherence and subsistence, and yet deny the conception of a derived essence. In Van Til's view, the logical order of the processions is with reference to personal existence alone and does not include, additionally, the communication of the divine essence. Now this leads Van Til, Calvin's doctrine of the Son as autotheos, where you have one personal processions and two, underived essence. Those two things are in view. Personal processions, underived essence. It leads Van Til to formulate what he calls the absolute 
equality and equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in God or in the Godhead. Absolute equality and equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in the Godhead. Listen to what he says. He says, in God, the one and the many are equally ultimate. Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity is no more fundamental than unity. Elsewhere, Van Til affirms, quote, the equal ultimacy of the one and many or of unity and diversity in the Godhead. Far from being peripheral to Van Til's understanding, the absolute equal equality and point of ultimacy requires all the emphasis that we can give it. Page 8 from Common Grace in the Gospel. The three persons of the Trinity are co-substantial or consubstantial in this sense. Not one is derived in his substance from one or the others. Not one is derived in his substance from one or the other. Van Til sees in that formulation an overt denial of the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity. The Father would be the principle of true unity as he communicates his person and essence to the Son and by extension to the Spirit. And Van Til is not by any way um, uh, shy about saying that Calvin is the inspiration for this formulation. He says, with respect to the ontological trinity, I try to follow Calvin in stressing that there is no subordination of essence between the three persons. It's from page 240 of Defense of the Faith. You see, there are three distinct persons in this unity, but both the diversity and the identity are equally underived. No derivation. In this sense, then, Van Til depends on Calvin when speaking of the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity. It is Calvin's doctrine of autotheos. It is not First and foremost, a philosophical pre-commitment to the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity as though somehow abstractly that's desirable. What Van Til's saying about equal ultimacy is that it flows from a denial of the communication of the essence. So Van Til puts it this way. The persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another. The Son and the Spirit are ontologically on par with one another. And so as Van Til talks and develops this theology of equal ultimacy, he not only invokes the idea of mutually exhaustive persons, but he invokes the idea of mutually exhausting the essence of the Trinity. And Van Til says, then, when it comes to our theology 
of the unity and diversity within the Godhead, Calvin's theology stands out as a unique and enduring contribution. Now, I want to tell you why this is so important. If in the theology of the personal relations, the Father has properties or qualities that the Son does not have, or the Father has properties and qualities that the Spirit does not have, Two things are not possible. Please hear this. First, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot subsist as the undivided essence because the Father's essence is underived, the Son and Spirit's essence is derived, and Van Til, following Calvin, would be concerned of some form of partition within the essence of God. There would be arguments that could come back against Calvin, but that's Calvin's view and Van Til's following. If communication of essence implies any partition of essence, then the Father subsists as that one divine essence in a way that the Son and Spirit do not underrive. Secondly, if the Father possesses a quality that the Son or Spirit do not possess, having derived essence, if that's an entailment, then the absolute personal interiority of the persons dwelling in one another is compromised as well. The Father would always have something interior to Him that neither the Son nor Spirit have. What would that interior thing be? He has an underived essence. But the Son, cannot exhaustively dwell in an interior relationship to him because he does not have an underived essence. The Spirit cannot dwell exhaustively in the Father either because he has a derived essence and the Father does not. So the idea of each person subsisting exhaustively as the absolute undivided essence is destroyed, according to Van Til if there is a communication of essence and the Son and the Spirit have a derived essence and the Father underived. And secondly, that absolutely exhaustive co-inhabitation, full interiority of the personal coherence, that would be compromised as well for those who have not affirmed this. Now, let me make this comment as a brief aside. This is not the majority view within the Reformed tradition. There are some who have continued to speak of a communication of the divine essence to the Son and to the Spirit and seek to affirm the absolute, unqualified co-equality of the persons. Calvin is raising the question whether or not that is consistent. Warfield is raising the question whether or not that is consistent, and Van Til is pressing the point that it's not. It's not a consistent Trinitarianism. And so the reason why it's so important to follow Calvin on personal processions and an underived essence applying equally to the Son and the Spirit, as well as the Father, is that once that's in place, 
we can talk about the fullness of these subsistent and coherent relations without the specter of subordinationism coming into view within the Godhead. And to the extent that we can speak this way, we can speak in a way that makes clear this robust Trinitarianism that's going to underlie a theology of the covenant. And as we start to turn our attention toward Van Til's theology of the covenant, here's what we need to remember. This theology is going to lay the foundation for what Van Til will call the representational principle. And the representational principle will explain how this God can relate to the creature in an absolutely personal way while remaining absolute, while remaining triune, while remaining immutable and impassable, this God in the dynamism of his person can condescend in creation and covenant and relate to the creature in an exclusively and thoroughly personal way without losing himself in the relation. So the representational principle is going to capture this Trinitarian theology in a way that enables it to have a full flowering in, in a development that shows it uh, not to be a modernist, not to be a Roman Catholic construction, but to be the fruition of a full-orbed Augustinian Reformed Covenant theology. We'll develop that as the course continues.